This morning as we continue our study of the Sermon on the Mount, we have come to a number of statements made by the Lord that are among the most misunderstood, misinterpreted, and misapplied verses in all of the New Testament. These statements have been described as the hard sayings of Jesus. They've been called hyperbole. They've been said to be impossible. Commands for another world. In fact, one Bible teacher said that if anybody other than Jesus had said these words, we would be prone to dismiss them as coming from some, and I quote, out-of-touch visionary who did not really understand the human predicament. But these words didn't come from an out-of-touch visionary. They came from the Lord of glory. They came from our Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. And though they are radical, and though they are revolutionary, they are commands to be lived out today in our world. And last week we began to look at these radical statements by Jesus. And I pointed out to you that in order to be rightly understood, they need to be understood in their context, in their setting. And their context, which is really clearer in Matthew's more complete version of the Sermon on the Mount than in Luke's version, is that Jesus has been explaining the true interpretation of some of the laws laid down by God in the Old Testament. Why? Because the ancient rabbis and the Pharisees and scribes of that day have manipulated the meaning of these laws to say what they wanted them to say in order for them to look like they were obeying God when in reality all these men wanted was to appear righteous, to appear pious before others. And that's why Jesus said, In Matthew chapter 5 verse 20, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now as I pointed out to you last week, the Pharisees had no righteousness. They did everything for the sake of appearing to be righteous before others, when in reality they were simply self-righteous religious actors out to impress others. However, even before mentioning the self-righteous legalistic Pharisees and their manipulation of the Mosaic law, Jesus had said something about his own relationship to the Mosaic law. He said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I didn't come to abolish, but to fulfill. Now what Jesus meant by, by this is that what he was about to say in his sermon about Old Testament laws, wasn't for the purpose of negating them, wasn't that he was replacing any of these laws, but rather he had come to give the correct interpretation of these laws as well as to fulfill them by perfectly keeping, observing all these laws. And to demonstrate that he wasn't abolishing any of the laws, Jesus proceeded to explain the true meanings of several of them. And the reason he did this was because, as I said, these laws had been twisted, they'd been distorted, they'd been manipulated by the ancient rabbis and the Pharisees of that day, so that their true interpretations had been obscured to the, to the point that the typical man on the street really didn't understand what God meant by what he said. Now, our Lord's purpose in doing this wasn't to give a theological lesson on how to interpret the Bible, but rather to explain to his followers, the Sermon on the Mount was given for the most part to his followers, the high 
and holy standards of divine righteousness. He wanted his disciples to understand how they were to live in order to please God in contrast to the hypocritical Pharisees who altered, consistently altered the meaning of God's laws in order to fit their sinful desires and their sinful lifestyles. Jesus was was simply teaching the citizens of his kingdom how God expected them to behave with godly inner attitudes, godly proper motivations, as well as proper outward behavior. And the way Jesus did this was that he used a formula. He said, you have heard that the ancients were told, meaning this is how this law has been traditionally, commonly interpreted and taught by the rabbis and been understood by the people. But I say to you, meaning, but what I'm about to tell you about this law is the true interpretation, the accurate interpretation, the correct interpretation of the law, exactly how God always intended it to be understood. And after using this formula to explain the number of Old Testament laws, Jesus closes out this section of his teaching about these laws by addressing what the law said, the Mosaic law said about love. Now, as we learned last Sunday, Jesus said that while the ancient rabbis and Pharisees of his day said that the law taught you shall love your neighbor but hate your enemy, he said the Old Testament really taught just the opposite. You're to love your enemies, not hate them. And then, having laid down this command to love those who hate us, Jesus then spoke of some very specific ways that we are to love those who hate us. We are to love them, he said, by doing good to them. Meaning that you have to do something positive, something tangible, something concrete that would benefit them. You have to know your enemy's needs and go meet them. It's not enough to just say, well, I'm not talking to them anymore. I'll just conveniently avoid them. I'll give them the silent treatment. Jesus said that you had to do good to them. He also said you had to pray for their salvation. You also had to ask God to specifically bless those who mistreat you. Now this is where we stopped last week. But as we pick up where we left off, we see that having spoken of being mistreated by those who are hostile towards us, as Jesus continues giving his sermon, he moves on to speak of some very specific, very tangible particular ways that people can mistreat us and how if you are treated like this how you're to respond in love and so in Luke's gospel we read these words in verse 29 whoever hits you on the cheek offer him the other also whoever takes away your coat do not withhold your shirt from him either now without doubt this is one of the most misunderstood verses in all the New Testament with many Christians assuming that Jesus is teaching that we should never defend ourselves if someone physically hits us. That we should just stand there and be like a punching bag and just take it. Letting them hit us over and over and over again. But folks, that's not what Jesus is teaching at all. And to help us understand that this isn't what Jesus is teaching. I want us to spend some time looking at what the Lord said in Matthew's account of the Sermon on the Mount. Because the statements that Jesus made leading up to this statement about turning the other cheek will help you to understand what the Lord actually meant 
by these words. So if you go back to Matthew chapter 5, you'll see that in verse 38, just before instructing his followers to turn the other cheek, Jesus explained the meaning of a very misunderstood Old Testament law. We read this in Matthew 5, 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now this law is known as the law of retaliation, commonly known as an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth law for obvious reasons. And just as Jesus had done with the other Old Testament laws that he mentioned, so now he does it with this one. First he mentions the false erroneous view of this law as set forth by the ancient rabbis and the Pharisees of his day. And then he will give the true and the accurate view of the law of retaliation, the way God always meant it to be understood. So let's begin by looking at the false view of the law of retaliation. Verse 38, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now Jesus begins his treatment of this particular law by making a direct quote that's actually found not in one, not in two, but actually three Old Testament verses. They all say the same thing. Exodus 21, 24, Leviticus 24, verse 20, and Deuteronomy 19, 21. As I said, they all say the same thing, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. See, each of these verses deal with the same law, the law of retaliation, which stated that if someone poked out your eye, then their eye was to be poked out. If someone knocked out your tooth, then their tooth was to be knocked out. But this law wasn't limited to eyes and teeth. The law of retaliation actually included a longer list of injured bodily parts, such as a hand for a hand, a foot for a foot, a fracture for a fracture, a burn for a burn, a wound for a wound, and a bruise for a bruise. See, the law of retaliation taught an all-important principle which is the very foundation for justice being carried out in society. That the punishment of a crime must fit the crime and not exceed it. By using the language of body parts, the law of retaliation was simply a very graphic way of saying that the penalty for a crime should match the crime. Nothing more, nothing less. Now while at first... This law may strike you as a bit savage, a bit barbaric. It actually was a very merciful law, not only because it did deter some crimes from ever taking place, but also it prevented retaliation from becoming excessive by restraining personal vindictiveness from being the rule of the day. In other words, this law guaranteed that the punishment for a crime would not be disproportionate to the crime itself. So that if you knock someone's tooth out, they couldn't in anger break every bone in your body even though they might feel like doing this. In fact, in the book of Genesis, we see two illustrations of why this law was so needed. First illustration is found in Genesis chapter 4, verses 23 and 24. It's about a man named Lamech who said to his wives, he had two wives, Ada and Zillah, Listen to my voice, you wives of Lamech. Give heed to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. Now this man Lamech said that out of vengeance he killed a man. He later describes him as merely a boy who just struck him. And he boasted, in other words, the, the boy just wounded him 
but he killed them. He boasted that his vengeance was 77 times greater than the punishment that this young boy deserved. In addition, Genesis 34 records an incident that after Jacob's daughter Dinah was defiled, physically, sexually defiled by a man named Shechem, two of Jacob's sons, Levi and Simeon, they sought revenge by first deceiving all the men associated with Shechem into being circumcised. And then when these men were in pain from the surgery, they killed all of them, all the males in that family, as well as that city, which was also named Shechem. And so God placed the law of retaliation in the Mosaic legislation for the purpose of protecting society from this type of vengeful overreaction. You see, this law not only made sure that justice was carried out for crimes committed in the land of Israel, but it also controlled the desire amongst the people for personal and individual vengeance. And the way it accomplished this, now pay close attention to what I'm about to say because this is critical to understand. The way this law controlled personal and individual vengeance was by putting this law, note this, in the hands of judges who decided the guilt or innocence of someone and then determined the punishment if indeed a crime had been committed. In other words, this law was restricted to the duly appointed judges in law courts throughout the land of Israel. It was not left up to individual citizens to carry out, but rather to the civil authorities. But that's not how the ancient rabbis saw it. That's not how the Pharisees and the scribes of our Lord's day saw it. Instead of leaving this law in the hands of judges and the civil justice system, they twisted this law to mean that every man had the right to inflict justice on someone who harmed them so that, in essence, every man became his own judge, jury, and executioner. So instead of seeing this law as God's way of restraining personal retaliation, the Pharisees manipulated it as a personal license to retaliate. In other words, they used this law to justify their cravings for personal revenge, which was the complete opposite of the divine intent of this law. See, God gave this law and put it in the hands of impartial judges in order to curb man's inclination for personal revenge. But the rabbis, they decided to take this law out of the court system and put it in their own hands in order to carry out their own personal vendettas against anyone who might harm them. And that's the error that Jesus was addressing in verse 38. See, the Pharisees completely disregarded the meaning and intent of this law. So that when, when Jesus states, you have heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. What he means by that is you have heard how the ancient rabbis and the scribes and Pharisees of our day have misused, misinterpreted, misapplied this law to validate their anger in holding grudges and carrying out personal revenge against others. He's condemning what's been taught. This isn't what the law taught. It's what the rabbi said the law taught. So once again, as with all the previous laws that we've seen, the Pharisees were manipulating this law to fit their own sinful lifestyle. They wanted vengeance, and now they had a biblical proof text to justify their vengeance. 
Listen, this is so very typical of someone who is self-righteous. Someone who's really evil in their hearts, but they just want to appear spiritual. You see, a self-righteous Pharisee, whether he's an ancient Pharisee or a modern-day Pharisee, will always find some way to excuse his sinfulness. And in the process of doing it, will try to look righteous because their thinking would go something like this. Well, after all, I'm obeying the Bible, aren't I? I mean, doesn't the Bible say an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth? So you can't fault me for doing what God commands me to do. Do you hear how pious that sounds? But it is false piety. It is sheer hypocrisy. Because that person isn't interested in obeying God. They don't obey God in other areas of their life. They're just very, very uh, interested in obeying Him here. Because they just want revenge. They want revenge so they'll misrepresent God's word to get it. Here's how Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones explained the underlying sin of the Pharisees in twisting this law. He said, as far as the teaching of the Pharisees and the scribes is concerned, their main trouble was that they tended to ignore entirely the fact that this teaching was for the judges only. They made it a matter for personal application. Not only that, they regarded it in their typical legalistic manner as a matter of of right and duty to have an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. To them it was something to be insisted upon rather than something which should be restrained. It was a legalistic outlook which thought only of its rights. See, the real sin, folks, behind the Pharisees' erroneous interpretation and misapplication of the law of retaliation wasn't that they merely misunderstood this law, but that it was their evil desire to even the score with anyone who inflicted some injustice on them. They thought that the law gave them the right to be angry. The law gave them the right to hold grudges. The law gave them the right to retaliate against their enemies. And that's why Jesus, in correcting the view of this law, he cuts to the very heart of the problem by instructing his disciples not only on the correct view of this law, but its very spirit it's very essence, it's very heart, which is about, note this, it's about giving up our personal rights or what we perceive to be our personal rights. So moving from the false view of the law of retaliation as taught by the scribes and Pharisees, Jesus now declares the truth about the law of retaliation as taught by the Old Testament and confirmed by Jesus. Notice Matthew chapter 5, the beginning of verse 39. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. Now, in this brief statement, Jesus not only corrects the Pharisees' faulty misinterpretation of the law of retaliation, but he actually sums up the true and the divine intent of this law. Instead of giving individuals the right to retaliate against someone as the Pharisees taught, Jesus taught that the true meaning of this law was just the opposite that no individual is ever, ever to strike back in personal vengeance against someone who does evil to them. See, the primary intention, as I've said, of the law of retaliation was to take vengeance out of the hands of individuals by placing justice into the hands of the civil authorities. So when Jesus said, do not resist an evil person, what he means by this is do not retaliate against an evil person. Now, at this point, we do have to pause. We have to ask a major question about 
Christ's words. How far do we take this non-resistance to evil? To Christ's words, do not resist an evil person. Does he mean that if someone attacks us, someone attacks our family, we're not to fight back in defending ourselves and protecting our loved ones? Are Christ's words to be taken as an absolute prohibition against the use of all force? That's a very valid question to ask. Well, that's how some have understood this. Most notably, the famous Russian writer and social reformer, Leo Tolstoy. Tolstoy said that based on the words of Jesus, we ought to eliminate police, military, and even our own court system because by the very nature of their work, he said, they're called upon to resist evil. And Jesus said, do not resist an evil person. Sounds strangely familiar about defunding the police. In his well-known novel, War and Peace, Tolstoy wrote this. He said, and I quote, It is impossible at one and the same time to confess Christ as God, the basis of whose teaching is non-resistance to him that is evil, and consciously and calmly to work for the establishment of property, law courts, government, and military forces. But listen, Tolstoy was wrong, absolutely wrong. When Jesus said, do not resist Him who is evil, he couldn't possibly have meant that we are never to resist evil. And how do we know that? Because if that were true, then it would contradict the rest of Scripture. And since God is the author of all Scripture, then his word is consistent and it is always in harmony with itself. See, the Bible teaches both by precept and example that there are times when we must resist evil. For example, the Bible commands us to resist the devil. And he's the epitome of evil. It doesn't get any more evil than Satan. But James 4, 7 says, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. The Bible also commands us to resist false teachers and their erroneous teaching. Because Jude verse 1 says that we are to contend for the faith which was once and for all delivered to the saints. We're also told that we are to resist evil in the church by disciplining church members who refuse to repent of their sin. Jesus taught that in Matthew 18. And by way of example, the New Testament reveals that Jesus and his apostles, they constantly resisted evil. When Jesus drove out the money changers in the temple, he was resisting evil. And he did it on more than one occasion. In publicly rebuking Peter, the Apostle Paul in Galatians 2.11 was resisting the evil of Peter's compromise and hypocrisy. He said, I withstood him to the face in front of everybody. I got up and said, Peter, you're wrong. And he was right to do that. And later Paul commanded Timothy to rebuke and publicly resist the evil of elders who continue in their sin. 1 Timothy 5.20 So we know that from these passages of scripture that resisting evil must take place if we are to deal with sin in the way God wants us to deal with sin. We also know from other passages of scripture that when Jesus said don't resist evil, he wasn't referring to government authorities. He wasn't referring to defund the police or the military because the Bible makes it very clear that God has established civil government for the very purpose of resisting evil people. That's why government exists. 
punishing those who commit crimes. Paul very clearly said this in Romans 13, 1 through 4. He said every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and those who who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what's good, and you'll have praise from the same, for it is a minister, meaning the government's a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what's evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it's a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. This isn't an isolated place. Peter said essentially the same thing in 1 Peter 2, 13 and 14 when he said, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. Listen, evil has to be restrained by civil authorities or you'll be left only with chaos. The concept of defunding the police is not only ludicrous, it completely goes against what the Bible teaches. In addition, restraining evil by civil authorities also means that if someone breaks the law and you're aware of it, you have a responsibility to report that crime. That's your civic responsibility. And in that way, you resist evil. So then if the Bible tells us that we have a responsibility to resist sin within the church and the government has the responsibility to resist sin in our society, then what did Jesus mean when he said, do not resist an evil person? He simply meant that we are not to resist an evil person who commits some specific sin against us personally. We're not to retaliate against them. In other words, we are not to do as the Pharisees did when someone sinned against them. They struck back with vengeance. But when someone wrongs us, we are never to be angry. We are never to be bitter. We are never to be determined that I'll get even. I'll get that person. See, what Jesus is really doing is he's telling us That our reaction to those who wrong us is never to be like the world's reaction. How does a non-Christian react when he's been wrong? Well, typically he responds in anger, with hostility, with a vindictive, unforgiving spirit. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth mentality. You hurt me and you're not going to get away with it. I'm going to hurt you. You'll pay for this. But as citizens of Christ's kingdom. Jesus is telling us, our Lord is telling us, this isn't how we are to respond when evil is done to us. Instead of holding a grudge, instead of having resentment, instead of looking for revenge, we are to respond in a loving and a selfless manner. In other words, as citizens of the kingdom, we don't stand upon our personal rights and lash out inventions like the Pharisees do. So then, the question is, what are we supposed to do when we're mistreated by others? Well, for the answer to that question, we now return to Luke chapter 6 and pick up where we left off. Having spoken of being mistreated in general by those who hate us, as Jesus continues giving his sermon, he now mentions some very 
specific, particular ways that others may mistreat us. But instead of responding by retaliating against them, he tells us how to respond in love to such mistreatment. The first kind of mistreatment he mentioned is found in verse 29. Let me read it again. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. Whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him. Now, as I said earlier, this is one of the most, if not the most, misunderstood verse in all of the New Testament, with many Christians just assuming that Jesus is teaching that we should never ever defend ourselves if someone hits us. But listen, that's not at all what the Lord is saying here. See, contrary to what many people think, Jesus isn't referring to even being physically attacked. He's not talking about being punched in the mouth. And he's certainly not saying that if someone hits you, you should just stand there and take it without defending yourself and protecting yourself. Listen, this can't possibly be what he's teaching, and I'll tell you why, for two reasons. First reason being this, that this would contradict what he would later tell his disciples before he was arrested, because here's what we read in Luke chapter 22, verse 36. We'll get to this when we're much older as we continue, but... Jesus will say, and whoever has no sword is to sell his coat and buy one. In other words, if you don't have a sword, men, to defend yourself in the event that you're violently attacked, then get one. Sell your coat if you need to raise money, but by all means, purchase a sword so that you can protect and defend yourself. Now, if Jesus told his disciples in Luke 22, to defend themselves, then he certainly would not be teaching back here in Luke 6 that they are forbidden to defend themselves. That'd be a complete contradiction. Second reason we know that Jesus isn't forbidding us from defending ourselves against someone who is physically attacking us is because of what we read in Matthew's version of the Sermon on the Mount, the same words spoken by our Lord. See, in Matthew's version, Jesus said something that is not recorded in Luke's gospel. Luke just, for whatever reasons, the Spirit of God inspired him, just chose not to record this. But Matthew did. Here's what Matthew said in a fuller account of what Jesus actually said. Matthew 5, 39. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you, now watch this, this is what we don't read in Luke's gospel. Whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. Now notice that Jesus specifically identifies which side of one's face is being slapped. The right one. The right side. The right cheek. And why is this important? Well, it's important because with most people being right-handed, I read some statistic, about 90% of people are right-handed. This means that for a right-handed person to take a swing at your face, they're going to hit your left cheek, your left side, not your right one. But a backhanded slap by a right-handed person would result in being slapped on the right cheek. Folks, what Jesus is describing is the act of someone insulting you by slapping you in the face with the back of their hand. That's what he's talking about. What he's describing is something that his audience of Jewish followers needed to know because as they would soon find out, when they would be excommunicated 
from their synagogues for their faith in Christ, they would be slapped across the face by the rabbi with the back of his hand as the most demeaning, degrading way of being insulted and dishonored. One Bible teacher commenting on how and why the Jewish rabbis would slap someone across the face, he wrote this. He said, according to rabbinical law, to hit someone with the back of the hand was twice as insulting as hitting them with the flat of the hand. The back of the hand meant calculated contempt, withering disdain. It meant that you were scorned as inconsequential. You were a nothing. Back of the hand. And what affirms, what affirms that Jesus couldn't possibly have meant that when someone physically hits you on one side of your face that you're just automatically to turn the other side of the face to them and say, well, hit me again, is that he didn't do this. He didn't do this when he was struck in the face by an officer at his trial before the Jewish high priest. Here's what we read in, in John 18, 22 and 23. When he, that's Jesus, had said this, one of the officers standing nearby struck Jesus saying, is that the way you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If I've spoken wrongly, testify of the wrong. But if rightly, why do you strike me? Now notice that instead of literally turning the other side of his face to be struck again by the officer, Jesus simply spoke of the injustice of being struck in the face. Listen, what Jesus means when he says to turn the other cheek is not intended to be taken literally. Rather, he's saying that the way to love someone who insults you is that instead of retaliating by striking them back with your own insult, let them insult you again if that's what they want to do. In other words, die to your pride. Accept the insult and continue to love them by letting them insult you again without retaliating. See, the real struggle, and we all have this, the real struggle we have with turning the other cheek and taking the insult on the chin, so to speak, is that our pride is wounded. It's not only humbling, it's humiliating. And that's because our natural sinful inclination, when we are insulted, is to strike back with vicious and angry words that say to this person, I'm going to give you a piece of my mind. You're not getting away with this. How dare you speak to me this way? And I'm not going to let you get away with talking like that or insulting me or doing whatever you've done. But to strike back with an insult not only would be sinfully wrong and it would be blatant disobedience to Jesus, but it would also cause you to act like a fool. Now that's not my opinion. That's what God says of anyone who does this. Proverbs chapter 26 verse 4. Do not answer a fool according to his folly or you will also be like him to respond to someone who is a fool by speaking to them in the same insulting way that they spoke to you is to be just like them but your Lord calls you to be like him loving and kind to those who strike out at you in 1 Peter chapter 2 we read these words verse 23 Speaking of Jesus, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. 
So the first specific type of mistreatment that Jesus identifies and tells us how to respond to in love is the mistreatment of being insulted without retaliating. But in the second part of verse 29, the Lord mentions another way that people can mistreat us. And we are not to retaliate, but rather show them love. He said these words, Whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Now what Jesus is referring to here is something that in his day was a grave injustice and a cruel mistreatment of a fellow human being. See, most Jewish people of Christ's day had only one coat. They were not wealthy. They were very poor. They only had one coat, which also served as a blanket to keep them warm at night when they slept. And that's why the Mosaic law stipulated that if someone took your coat as a pledge to guarantee that you would repay your loan to them, they had to return your coat at night so you could stay warm. That law is found in Deuteronomy 24 verse 13. So the mistreatment that Jesus is talking about is someone who in the context of loaning you some money, they take your coat as a pledge. That's okay. That's allowed. But then they don't return it at night. That's not allowed. That would be a terrible thing to do. It would be a merciless act of cruelty. But what did our Lord tell us to do if we are mistreated by someone who takes something that's valuable to us? He told his disciples, do not withhold your shirt from him either. In other words, the way you respond in love to someone who mistreats you by taking something that belongs to you is that if they want something more from you, then instead of fighting them, just give it to them. Just give it to them. See, the point that Jesus is making is that instead of retaliating by taking back what rightfully belongs to you, do the opposite of what's been done to you. Show them kindness Show them mercy by giving that evil person something else of yours. I told you this is radical teaching. Jesus means that when you are the victim of an evil injustice, you are not to insist upon your personal rights or try to get even with the person who did this to you. Instead, you are actually to go out of your way to help those who hurt you by voluntarily giving them more than they even took from you. Listen, I know that this runs contrary to our flesh. I know that this runs contrary to our society, to our culture, which always insists upon their rights. But this is why Jesus said that our righteousness has to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. Because if this ever happened to a Pharisee, and I'm sure it happened many times, then they would immediately get angry and go after their coat and probably bring a lawsuit as well. But he would never, ever think of being merciful and giving his adversary his shirt. That would never cross his mind. But we're not Pharisees. And that is the point. We're not Pharisees. Instead, as God's children, we are to reflect God's love. Even if we look foolish in the eyes of the world. We're to reflect his love. And how does God demonstrate his love to cruel, unjust, ungrateful unbelievers? Well, Jesus will address this in a few verses. A few verses later... In Luke 6, 35 and 36, when he will say this, but love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great and you'll be sons of the Most High, for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. So as God's children, we are to be merciful to those who mistreat us just 
As our Heavenly Father is merciful to those who have mistreated him by being ungrateful and evil. Now, so far, Jesus has taught us two ways that we are to love those who mistreat us. But as he continues, he gives two more ways that someone may mistreat you and how you're to respond in love if this happens to you. Verse 30. Give everyone who asks of you and whoever takes away what's yours, do not demand it back. Now, in the first part of this verse, Jesus speaks of someone mistreating you by asking you for something either money or some possession of yours. And Jesus said that if this happens, you are to give it to them. Now, once again, folks, we have to be careful in how we interpret and how we apply this statement because as we all know, there are many people who stand on street corners and they beg for you to give them some money. And the challenge that we all face because we all want to have hearts of compassion, but the challenge we all face is knowing if this individual really has a legitimate need or if they're just lazy and refuse to work or if they really need money to purchase food or if they plan to use the money to purchase drugs or alcohol. In fact, the Apostle Paul made it very clear that we are to refuse to give money to someone who, due to laziness, just isn't willing to work. Paul said this, In 2 Thessalonians 3.10. He said, if anyone is not willing to work, then he's not to eat either. Period. End of thought. Now keep in mind, Paul is only forbidding us from giving money to those who are able to work, but won't. He's not telling us to refrain from giving to those who do to some illness or bad circumstances are not able to work. They want to work, they just can't. So understand here in Luke chapter 6, verse 30, Jesus isn't encouraging us to give money to every freeloader and professional beggar that asks us for money. You have to be discerning, not naive, so that we give only to those who have legitimate needs. See, what Jesus tells us, when Jesus tells us to give to those who ask of us, he's not telling you that you are obligated to give to every single person who asks you for money. If that was the case, Then as one Bible teacher put it, he said, and I quote, there would soon be a class of saintly paupers owning nothing and another of prosperous idlers and thieves. Now, what Jesus is referring to, note this, because this is the context, is someone who wants to borrow money from you. They're not actually begging. They're borrowing money from you. Someone who is asking you to loan them money, not give them money, but loan them money. And I say this because in the previous case, Jesus just mentioned about someone mistreating you, taking your coat and so forth. It was about someone who didn't give you back that coat, which you gave them as a pledge that you would pay back your loan to them. So the context has to really do with loaning someone money and not giving indiscriminately to anyone who asks for some money from you. Therefore, what it appears that our Lord is talking about is someone who borrows money from you, but who may have no intention of ever paying you back. You don't know that. So it's a risky loan. And frankly, that is something that Jewish people in biblical times always had to be aware of because in Deuteronomy 15, the Mosaic law taught that every seven years, all debts were to be canceled. So what if someone had this all figured out and came to you in the sixth year asking for a loan? 
Well, you might be reluctant to give them a loan because you know and they know that if he doesn't pay it back in the next year, it would be legally, he would be legally free from his debt. Now, what would a Pharisee do with a request like this when he suspected someone was trying to exploit him, take advantage of him? We know exactly what he would do. He would turn away from this person in anger, in annoyance, wanting to get back at him for trying to exploit him and exploiting the system. But Jesus said that his followers, far from being angry and wanting to get even, are not to turn away from this request, but are to give it, even if the other person might indeed take advantage of them. They have no way of really knowing that. And why should you do this? Simply because your Lord said to do this. And this is the way that love behaves. Love is generous. Love is kind. Love seeks to meet the needs of others, even those who might take advantage of us. Now, listen closely because a word of caution is in order. Understand that having told us to be generous and to be kind to those who ask us for money, the Lord isn't telling us to be naive by enabling people to sin. If you know that the individual who's asking you for money has a track record of being irresponsible with money, then don't be foolish. Don't be foolish in giving them more money because if you do that, you're only contributing to their sin. You're entering into that sin by enabling them to continue to be financially irresponsible. So be generous, but don't be foolish. There's still one more type of mistreatment by an enemy that Jesus mentions, and that's found in the last part of verse 30. And whoever takes away what's yours, don't demand it back. Now, with this statement, Jesus is not talking about someone who asks you for a loan. No, he's talking about someone who robs you, someone who's a thief, someone who steals from you. That's what Jesus means when he speaks of someone taking away what's yours. They're not asking you for anything. They're taking it from you. And how does Jesus tell you to respond in love if this happens to you? If someone robs you and takes what belongs to you, he commands you not to demand it back. In other words, we are not to retaliate. We are not to strike back against the thief in vengeance. We are not to angrily demand that he return what he took. That's what a Pharisee would do. It's not what a follower of Jesus should do. A follower of Jesus refuses to demand his rights that whatever was stolen be returned. As one Bible teacher put it, he said, Jesus wants to protect the disciple's soul from damage and loss. It's better to suffer in body and in goods to every extent than to let passions and wrong desires possess the soul. Jesus speaks for the disciple and not for the wicked man who wrongs the disciple. God will deal with him and God has authorized penal laws for his punishment. Now folks, the one thing that ties all of this together, all that we've seen this morning, the one thing that each mistreatment by an enemy has in common is that Jesus commands us to respond in love to such mistreatment and that means that we do not retaliate by demanding our rights to be treated properly. Instead, we forgive them just as we've been forgiven in Christ and we let the Lord, note this, we let the Lord deal in vengeance with our adversary, not us. This is precisely the point that the Apostle Paul makes in Romans chapter 12 
in verse 19 when he says this, Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Now listen, God is very serious about this because he says that vengeance is completely his area. It's not yours. So you are to leave room, he says, for God to act in vengeance on those who mistreat you, which means that you are to step aside and not get in the way of him dealing with your enemy. Concerning just how serious God is about this, Jay Adams in his book, How to Overcome Evil, he wrote this. He said, never take your own revenge. When Paul says never, he means just that. There is never a time when the Christian as an individual on his own authority, may take vengeance on another. There are no special circumstances. The rule admits of no qualifications. You have no right to take vengeance. He has allocated that right to himself alone. Whenever you do so, wittingly or unwittingly, you attempt to grab a right that belongs to God. That is, in plain, unvarnished English, stealing. The man or woman who takes vengeance usurps the authority God has reserved for himself. Vengeance is not your job, it is his. So, if you've been mistreated, then trust that God, in his own time, in his own unique way, will take care of the matter. Sooner or later, the Lord will deal with those who have mistreated you. That's his promise. And that's his responsibility. So step aside. Don't get involved. Don't get in his way. Your responsibility is what? It's solely to love your enemy. That's your responsibility. By doing something good to benefit them. By praying for their salvation. By asking God to bless them. And by refusing to retaliate. Now if Jesus. You've heard all this. But if he's not your Lord. If he's not your Savior then the only thing that you need to be concerned about, the only thing, is your sin. Because unless you repent of your sin, which means to forsake it, and turn to Him for salvation, He will eventually, in judgment, and it will be an eternal judgment, deal with you in your sin, because He is just, He is holy, and you, like everybody else, are not. You're not. So repent of your sin, turn to Christ to save you, believe that on the cross, when he paid for the sins of sinners, believe that you were included in that and trust him alone for your salvation. If today you want to speak to someone, one of our pastors about this, then just see me as we close the service, which we're going to do now. So let's join our hearts in prayer. Lord, these really are radical words because it just goes against what we naturally want to do. But what we naturally want to do is sinful. Lord, we thank you for always speaking the truth to us. No matter how hard it is, no matter how much it hurts, you are the truth. So Lord, we now know what your word teaches. Help us to obey it. If there's anybody now going through very painful mistreatment by others, may your words just give them such guidance as to what to do. Help them to swallow their pride even to look foolish in the eyes of others, but to do what's right because you have said that this is what we are to do. Lord, we pray also for those who may not know you. 
Open their hearts to the gospel. May they understand the meaning of the cross. Christ died for sinners. May they understand their need to repent, their need to turn to you, their need to trust you alone for their salvation. We pray that you would accomplish this as only you can as you work in the hearts of people. We can never force, never persuade others in our own strength to be saved. Only you can. So we ask you to do this and we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.